the real motivation for Putin is a more emotional, psychological, Russian, spiritual one. It is the week of February 21, and welcome to episode 119 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have Carmen Medina, NSI Advisory Board member and former Deputy Director of Intelligence at the Central Intelligence Agency, Rob Walker, Visiting NSI Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, Mario Loyola, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and myself. Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We are recording on the afternoon of Monday, February 21. Uh, It's about halfway through the afternoon. President uh, Putin of Russia has just finished an hour-long speech in which he laid out several pretexts for the possible invasion of Ukraine and announced that uh, he was going to recognize the two so-called breakaway republics that are part of Ukraine, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, which are also called Donbass. Clearly, uh, this is part of the buildup to what is very likely to be a Russian invasion of Ukraine and therefore a major crisis in Europe, which will impact the United States enormously. Mario, uh, you've written uh, extensively in the last couple of weeks on Russia's motives and concerns regarding this, this possible war in Europe. Can you tell us your thesis of the case? Well, I would start the story back during the administration of George H.W. Bush, and uh, which I think uh, was very brilliantly handled the liquidation of the Soviet empire in Europe and the end of communism in Europe uh, and the reunification of Germany. And, and just remind everyone, and you, you all don't need any reminding, but the, the potential for turmoil in the fall of the Soviet Union was truly enormous. And the number of potential conflicts of this kind that we avoided uh, through careful negotiation and careful foresight is, you know, one of one of the greatest achievements in the modern history of U.S. diplomacy. But we didn't get everything right. And I think that one one thing that we should have realized was it had enormous potential for conflict was the map that was bequeathed to you, this new state of Ukraine in 1991, which contained uh, Crimea, an area that had really never been considered part of Ukraine before 1954, uh, uh, when Nikita Khrushchev sort of nominally made it part of Ukraine for purposes of enhancing the appearance of multipolarity within the Soviet Union. And it contained, you know, this east, these eastern regions that were majority Russian dominated. This was a strong case in 1991 for a potential territorial adjustment just to make sure that Ukraine could effectively be sovereign and independent of Russia. Because with that many Russians in it and with Russia's most important naval base in the world on its territory, uh, you know, there were other adjustments. We convinced Kiev to give up its nuclear weapons. Kiev suddenly found itself with Russia's Black Sea Fleet. We convinced them to give that up. Uh, So I think that there was a clear-cut case for a territorial adjustment, and it didn't happen. And I think maybe one of the reasons that it didn't happen is the people in in Moscow thought to themselves, you know what, it's better maybe to leave these 10 or 15 million Russians and Crimea inside of Ukraine, because that way we can assure ourselves that Moscow will always have a lever of influence over Ukraine, and Ukraine will never be really independent of Russia. And we, we're seeing this play out now because Kiev has slowly come to the realization that compliance with the Minsk agreements may not actually be in its long-term interests. 
because if these areas were were well, it's it's a, it's a fait accompli now. But before today, they theoretically could have complied with the Minsk agreements and reintegrated uh, Luhansk and Donetsk back into Ukraine. That would have brought back in you know several million Russian speakers who could then vote in in Ukrainian elections again and potentially elect a pro-Russian government again. Whereas unencumbered by Crimea and unencumbered by these breakaway regions in Donbas, uh, the election of a pro-Russian government in Kiev has become impossible. And so now Ukraine is, over since 2014, has really started to see the benefits of unencumbering itself from these regions Uh, which is that it can assume a truly European orientation and exercise truly independent sovereignty. But unfortunately, a territorial adjustment now under the, you know, at the end of a barrel of a gun is not something that the U.S. can can facilitate or be a party to. So now we've now we're really out of options, because as uh, the ambassador said the other day uh, on the NSI call last Thursday, um, the, the Minsk agreements are really now now they're a dead letter, but they were already. Uh, leading nowhere. And so what options we have, I'm not sure. Mario, I'm going to, before we turn to the other panelists, I want to push back a little bit on your argument here, which I think was very well stated. There could be a way forward here if ultimately this is about the Russian naval base in Crimea. There could be an agreement between Kiev and Moscow on the future of that facility, uh, an understanding about a way forward. And we all know that a Russian military base uh, in Ukraine, very likely a disqualifier for NATO membership for Ukraine. We may not want to say that out loud on the front page every single day, but uh, that is that is certainly a truism. That possibility was thrown out there for the last couple of months, uh, if informally, and was surely part of diplomatic conversations behind the scenes. So if given that there could have been a path here for the concern you lay out, isn't aren't we still faced with the prospect that Russia just needs f- for uh, perceived political reasons for Putin needs to be very aggressive with Ukraine right now to ensure the continuity of his regime in Moscow. What do you what do you say to that? Uh, I mean, you know, we're all we're all students of George Kennan, and I've I've have always believed, especially under the Soviet Union, that Russia Russia's foreign policy was essentially a systematic exportation of its regime insecurity. Right. So that that general uh, way of looking at Russian behavior has always been has been valid for a long time. But I think that in this particular situation, Russia really has been responding to events in ways that it felt it in situations that really were leaving Russia with few options. I think people are not appreciating outside of Russia how at different points Putin appear, really appears to be responding to events rather than being opportunistic about them. And I'll just give you one example. The reason why I don't think that, that Putin ever really wanted to absorb Crimea or these regions, uh, and here's my case for that. When you know I was in law school in 1997, reading The Economist, uh, having just recently majored in European history at the University of Wisconsin, I don't know what uh, that didn't qualify me to be a CIA analyst, but I read about this uh, 20-year lease on Sebastopol that the that these governments signed in 1997, and I thought to myself, huh. Well, I'm just a student of Mikhail Petrovich, but this is obviously not going to work. And I hope that they're coming up with something more 
permanent because anybody who knows Russian history can see that there's going to be a problem here. So uh, the years pass, and then in uh, around 2008, 2009, uh, we have a government in uh, Ukraine, I believe it was uh, under uh, President Yushchenko, who openly, who openly announced, and this was the position of the Ukrainian nationalists at the time, that the lease agreement was not going to get renewed. And then in 2014, when uh, the government of uh, the government of the pro-Russian President Yanukovych gets deposed, you know, one of the there was a meeting of the security cabinet in Moscow, and Putin came out of it saying, and they immediately publicized this information. At the end of the meeting, Putin said, "Okay, we have to think about getting Crimea back now." Because now we're three years away from the end of the 20 year lease. And now we've got we've been now now the pro-Russian party has been deposed. And within the next three years, there's not going to be another pro-Russian party. And this is so I think that they came to the conclusion in 2014 that there would not be a negotiated uh, adjustment involving Crimea or Russian access to Crimea, which, by the way, is another piece of this that we'll hopefully have time to get to. Um, you, You still can't cross Russian territory to get to Crimea. You have to take this fantastical bridge across the Sea of Azov. Uh, But anyway, in answer to your question, I think that the Russians concluded in 2014 that they wouldn't be able to get a negotiated settlement over Crimea out of of Ukraine. Carmen, speaking of CIA analysts, um, do you you think Russia has legitimate concerns, legitimate security concerns regarding Crimea and and its naval base there that is part of this crisis? Yes. I mean, I, I do think that the port in Crimea is probably the single most important Navy facility for the Russian Navy for all sorts of climatic reasons and geographic reasons. But I, I also think I've been thinking about this situation this weekend. And I also think that Putin has an emotional attachment to Ukraine and Crimea that dates to the time of the czars. Um, where he, I think, is strongly attached to the concept of greater Russia being Russia, great Russia, Belarus, white Russia, and the Ukraine, uh, little Russia, and kind of almost the original Russia, the birth of Russia. So I've been thinking about what leads someone to pursue a path toward war that is going to be, uh, you know, if hostilities break out, quite significant and has a lot of potential downside. And I I believe that a, a world leader who is contemplating this is thinking about more than tactics and strategic naval considerations, that there has to be an emotional content to it. I, I, I'll close with this observation. I read this meme on uh, social media this last week about how the greatest con has been that men have convinced the world that hatred and anger is not an emotion. So that, you know, women are, per, are portrayed as the emotional ones, whereas to be angry or to hate is really just a manly virtue. And I throw that in there because I just think it makes, uh, sheds light on how difficult it is to achieve a negotiated settlement. Because if you're playing chess and you think, well, I'll trade off this piece of land or property for that, and then everything will be resolved. But in fact, if there's a high emotional quotient in it, it's not going to be so easy. Rob, over the weekend, this this Senate candidate in Ohio, J.D. Vance, uh, basically stated, I I don't give a damn about what's going on on the Russia-Ukraine border. Doesn't matter to me. 
kind of bluntly articulating this taftish um, isolationist trend in Republican thinking that's been there for a very long time, uh, a little bit Trumpy, perhaps, although I never heard uh, Trump articulate it quite that way. What What are your thoughts about about that and about Mario's argument that uh, this this goes back to 1991? I, I I cannot agree more with Mario. It does start with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and Putin. Let's remember, was born in in uh, Leningrad, now Saint Petersburg, um, raised there un- into the KGB. Uh, is you know is a Soviet through and through. He, he bleeds old Soviet red and gold, um, and he wants to, as Carmen mentioned, reunite what he thinks of you know make make Russia great again. Um, in, in his mindset, I guess. I, I to your point on JD Vance, um, I wonder if that's just a bunch of red meat for his campaign, and he's trying to you know woo the the Trump wing of the voters in uh, in Ohio, or if he is indeed. You know, if that's indeed what he thinks, if he does, I'm, I'm sorry, because there are many reasons we should care about Ukraine, not the least of which is our own national, international leadership and our reputation. Um, you know, we've we we signed the the Budapest memo uh, during the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the in the reallocation of nuclear weapons around the world with the express um, backing that we would support Ukraine and its efforts to maintain its sovereignty. Uh, beyond, you know, so it didn't have to rely on the nuclear threat. Um, obviously, in 2014, we did not live up to that memo. That's dead letter now, as well as the Minsk and Minsk II agreements. Uh, so there's a bunch of worthless ink and paper floating around in the international circles right now that I, I hope we can, as a nation and as this administration, can begin to lean back into American leadership and American moral authority in leadership and, um, you know, bring our allies and, and friends to bear on this issue. I don't know that it's coming to the point of U.S. military response at this time, um, but we definitely need to be strongly backing those in Ukraine. And breaking news while we were on uh, from CNN, President Biden and President Zelensky have spoken today for about 35 minutes. Uh, so good. Our president is in close uh, communication with the president in Ukraine. Uh, I hope that continues. And I hope we are finding ways to lend lease or wholesale ship and give, you know, arms and, and support and training and whatever we can to allow them to maintain their own territorial integrity as it stands now. I'll pause there. Can I just make a comment on Ohio, which has actually a very high East European, East and Central European population, including many Ukrainians. And if you visited Cleveland, they have a huge park that has sections devoted to every national group that settled in that area, and it includes the Ukrainians. So not sure it's such smart politics from him to say that. So one of, one of the other things that we've seen in the, in the buildup to where we are today is that the leadership of NATO, that is the United States, London, Paris, Berlin, do seem to have come together with a fairly unified message on uh, against possible Russian aggression here. And I think it and, and I'm 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 no super advocate of President Biden politically, but I think we we owe him some credit here for uh, being true to the nature of the of the NATO alliance, uh, turn it, turning into the skid on that and demonstrating that uh, while we may have used be using different languages and occasionally uh, different phrases, 
essentially the Western alliances united against Russian aggression in Ukraine. We're not sending troops, as Rob pointed out, but there is NATO is fairly steadfast in opposition, at least diplomatically and rhetorically to what's going on here. Mario, I, I'm interested in your in your perspective in particular on what are what are the implications of that going forward? If we're looking at, at military action on the ground with Ukraine, what does it what does it say to you that the the Western alliance appears to be fairly steadfast right now? Well, I, this is going to be a rare disagreement uh, between us here, less because I, I actually don't think that the Western alliance is all that unified here. I think that they are working hard to portray themselves as unified, um, but they have very di- they have very divergent interests. Uh, and you know, I've been my view of of this is really drawn from a close reading of German sources as well as American sources. I've mentioned the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, sort of their equivalent of CSIS, uh, extremely informative series of publications over the years. Um, I I would say that the fact that Berlin and Paris both endorsed uh, and, 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 and advocated strongly for Moscow's position on the Minsk agreements uh, which was to put pressure on Kiev, as much pressure as they could summon in the, in the Normandy format talks for Kiev to implement the Minsk agreements, is uh, I'm not sure President Macron really fully understood the consequences of taking Moscow's position in this debate, but it's certainly not uh, the position that uh, U.S. diplomats have taken. So, uh, you know, and, and Germany, of course, has... Uh, interests that are not aligned with the United States when it comes to energy supply and things like that, that we need to, that we need to think about. Um, I don't think that NATO membership for the, for Ukraine is, is even within the realm of the possible, as long as Ukraine continues to claim the Crimea and now these regions that have been annexed. And, and because besides a territorial dispute, uh, it just can't be a, a stable state in these with, with so many Russians on it, as I said before. Um, I think going back to, you know, going back to the point about that J.D. Vance said, it, you know, it's been fascinating to me over the years to see how the pacifists on the left, the non-interventionists on the left, seem to be against intervention because they think that America, everything America does is bad. The non-interventionists on the right often agree with them, but, but it's because they don't really care about other people, not because they think that anything that America does is bad. Uh, and, you know, the, the number of conservative internationalists is dwindling. It's the people on this call and maybe like 15 other people. But, um, but hopefully our foreign policy is going to come back in style one day because we really need it. And that's certainly, I mean, my, my, uh, my, my own position on this, and I'm a very interventionist, very internationalist uh, as you know, Les, uh, my, my philosophy is very internationalist um, when it comes to foreign policy. I just don't think, and, I, and even if I was a supporter of, let, let's, let's assume that we are all supportive of Ukrainian sovereignty and of Ukraine's aspirations to be oriented towards Europe. If that is the goal, then you have to see the things that Ukraine has been doing that are not compatible with that ultimate goal. And if Ukraine continues to lay claim to these territories that were really made part of Ukraine in order to assure that it would never be independent of Moscow, 
then it's ultimately playing into the hands of the great Russian nationalists like Vladimir Putin. So this, there's like a double game going on here where things are not quite what they seem. And uh, I think that it's, um, you know, I go back to the dilemma of what you do now with Ukraine, which can't come to an agreement uh, with Russian troops massing on the borders. But at some point, this conflict has to end. At some point, the territorial dispute has to be settled. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we should, American diplomats, if they're going to, you know, they should have thought about this 20 years ago, but if they're going to do something useful now, that's what they should be trying to think about now. Uh, Mario, I'm going to push back again, hopefully in a, in a different and better way. And, and my pushback on this, on this uh, particular point is, you know, Ukraine is not a, an, you know, an entity that makes decisions about uh, its strategic relationship with Russia in, in the abstract. It's a democracy. There are uh, 40, 45 million Ukrainians who have a vote here. And they effectively, in the last eight years, have voted with the West. They threw out Yanukovych, who was the pro-Moscow uh, kind of um, uh, leader that, that Putin was looking for in Kiev. Uh, they threw him out. They elected Poroshenko. They've elected Zelensky, who, are both, who have both taken this uh, more critical approach to Moscow. The Ukrainians themselves want to look to the West. It seems to me that we can't just overlook that in this, re- as much as I value realpolitik and the realist approach to things, and it's it's got huge legitimacy. We can't just ignore the will of the Ukrainian people. If they have effectively voted to look to the West, we are we not obliged to honor that in a very significant way? I mean, I, just to be, and I want to hear from the, from others on this, but, you know, I said just a moment ago that I wholeheartedly embrace the aspirations of the Ukrainian people to be independent of Russia and oriented towards Europe. The point that I am making is the borders of 1991 are incompatible with that goal. This is an area, those borders can only produce conflict until they are adjusted. And they can only, they can only get in the way of the of the aspirations of the mass of the Ukrainian people to be oriented towards the West. Carmen, what do you think? First, on the question of NATO, uh, if Putin, if there are significant military activities, invasion of the Ukraine, it will serve to unite NATO. So whether or not NATO has been united up to this point or how effective it's been up to this point, I think that that is a potential miscalculation on the part of Putin that you know, don't wish for what you want because you might get it, that by by agitating in Ukraine to the point where it does unite NATO, where he shows his hand so clearly, I think that that's, that's an issue. And then the second point I would make is that will resolving the borders or drawing new, more defensible borders between Ukraine and Russia, will that actually end? The conflict between Ukraine and Russia, not if, in fact, the real motivation for Putin is a more emotional, psychological, Russian, spiritual one, which I would say I think it is because that's sort of been the style of Russian leadership for hundreds of years. But let me let me ask let me ask you all a question, if I could. Let me put the this puts the question starkly. If we could go back to implement the Minsk agreements and go back and and 
fully just undo the annexation of Crimea, undo today's, today's recognition of the breakaway republics, and go back to 2013, we would be going back to a situation where the Russian, pro-Russian parties have a 50-50 chance of winning any election in Ukraine. Do you think that that's preferable to this? Well, it, but that was the, but isn't, isn't that the point, Mario? The, we had that situation in 2013. The Ukrainian people themselves rejected that. It's not sustainable in Ukraine. Hold on, hold on. What's your what, when you say that the Ukrainian people rejected that? Are you referring to the riots in the streets that deposed the government, and then the subsequent election of uh, of uh, of Poroshenko after yes. after? Yes. But that's but the subsequent election of Poroshenko happened precisely because you had breakaway republics and Crimea annexed, and some ten million Russian voters outside of the Ukrainian electorate. That's the point that I'm making, is that if you undo all these territorial adjustments and go back to the Ukraine of 2013, you're going back to a Ukraine that is subject to the power of Moscow, whereas the Ukraine that you're looking at now is not. We could, I think we could argue over the details, but it's, it seems to me that was not sustainable under Ukrainian terms, or Yanukovych would have succeeded. I agree. That's been my point about why the borders of 1991 were bound to produce conflict and turmoil. They were not sustainable borders, except for a country that is a subordinate ally of Russia. All right. Exit, exit question for Rob. What is, what is your take on the on Carmen's uh, Russian toxic masculinity of, uh, analysis of Vladimir Putin, which I find fascinating? <laughs> I, fantastic. Uh, yeah. But it, and well labeled. Lester, you're so woke. I didn't even know it. It's amazing. Uh, I, I, I think there is a strong emotional thread here. Uh, I, I am by no means a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and I have not stayed at Holiday Inn Express for years. So, you know, this is not, you know, doctorally sound. This is Rob Walker's opinion. He clearly has this idea, though, of, of greatness and returning to that which he grew up under, and that is the power of the Soviet Union. Um, and, and I think, you know, I... The, the thing that really bothers me in all of this, though, is the 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 language argument, right? Oh, there's Russian speakers there, so we're going to go protect them. So do we need to be worried about Brighton Beach in New York? I mean, do we need to be worried? Do, do other countries now need to be worried about Russian speakers? And if I recall, I think the Germans used the same excuse to uh, to, to re-annex re the Rhineland. Uh, at the beginning of World War II, so there's some historical parallels here that really have the, you know, the uh, the hairs in the back of my neck standing up. But yeah, toxic masculinity. Uh, it's probably the one time I'll ever use that phrase. But yeah, <laughs> I'm down with it, Lester. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's uh, let's flex to our next uh, topic, which is who is bombing the moon. The New York Times reported last week that it is not SpaceX but rather China that is responsible for an, uh, an object that is going to slam into the moon next week on March 4th. It turns out that a rocket launched several years ago will hit the crater known as Hertzsprung on the dark side of the moon in just a few days. Space debris trackers, yes, there are such people, had thought it was a SpaceX rocket from 2015, and now the record has been corrected. Rob, uh, what in the heck is going on up there? Less we are treating space and we have treated space like the interstates of the 70s and 80s. We just throw a bunch of junk out there and expect somebody else to clean it up. Um, and, you know, I, I see Carmen shaking her head. I, I think all of us on this call 
we're old enough to remember driving down the interstate system or even local highways and everything was just riddled with trash and, and litter. Um, and then a national campaign went out about, you know, stopping littering and it helped clean up. Um, we need to do something similar with space. There's got to be a more uh, responsible set of, of regulations and a regulatory body that dictates uh, what is allowable in terms of space debris, space junk, and, and who's responsible for their or, or holding countries as responsible for their space junk. Um, and what, what else is going on is the huge competition in that realm uh, to include five nations now who have tested and, and proven the ability to destroy in-orbit objects, um, China among them, is only going to create you know, more debris, more chaos, uh, and is going to maybe get some of these space debris trackers paid for the, for what they're doing in their free time currently. Um, I'm sorry it's, you know, coming to this, uh, but China needs to be held responsible for that. And, you know, we, we too, as the United States, need to go up and start cleaning out some of our stuff. I know that is a huge technological feat and an expensive undertaking, um, but as we rely more and more on space for everything from internet distribution uh, to phone connectivity to understanding our own atmosphere and climatology um, to looking out to the stars to find our second home, if that if that be the case, uh, we've got to be more responsible up there and start taking down or moving some of this stuff that's in the way. Carmen, uh, the plot of the Transformers movies aside, uh, things it, should Americans really care about things crashing into the dark side of the moon about this space debris issue? What's what's your take? Well, I mean, I, presumably the moon can withstand a, a few of these uh, missiles hitting it. But I, I think Rob is right that it's really a uh, uh, a stand in for this whole issue of managing space. And, you know, SpaceX, what, it lost 40 of its satellites in the last couple of weeks because of solar flare activity we're entering or have entered into a period of solar maximum that will last several years, which means that the sun is going to throw junk out in a more vigorous way, which will affect uh, more of the stuff that we have circling. And this, like climate change, you know, not as important, I don't think, as climate change, but it could become uh, quite important. This issue is one that can only be resolved if these important powers start talking to each other, you know, in a very serious way about the quid pro quos and the deals that have to be struck to resolve this. And, you know, with climate change, the two countries that most need to settle down and talk seriously, China and the U.S., you know, are barely speaking productively to each other. I fear the same thing can happen with the management of space. And I think uh, Rob is right that the strategic importance of the management of space is only going to grow over the years to come. It's not a trivial issue. Everything from our communications to our GPS systems to monitoring climate to growing food now depends upon uh uh, a wise administration of space resources. And we've got to get on top of this. Mario, uh, I want to ask you about the International Space Station, of course, which has both Americans and Russians aboard. How do you think the, the mood's going to be up there, given what's going on with Ukraine? You know, for Russia, I've always, I've always thought of Russia as, um, you know, I've always thought of Russia differently than the Soviet Union, which really was an evil empire. Russia, I kind of think of as your... Your 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 womanizing 
uncle with an alcohol problem who says outrageous stuff and ex- displays toxic masculinity at the dinner table, but is still sort of part of the family. And I think that that's how Russia sees itself too. And I think that uh, Russia is not, Russia is not, uh, I don't think that Russia is, Putin is not going to extend uh, the conflict here. If anybody's going to enlarge the conflict uh, to other areas of uh, intercourse between Russia and the United States or between Europe and the United States, it's going to be the Western allies in Washington. Um, I think that this topic, by the way, not it raises a good opportunity for me to mention not just how cool Pink Floyd is. I was just listening to The Dark Side of the Moon on Friday and I'm reminded that Roger Waters promised to see me on The Dark Side of the Moon um, uh, but I do want to burnish my Russia hawk credentials by saying as well that I'm a big proponent of having pulled out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, uh, which is one of the first things that the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration did in 2001. And I'm a big proponent of, of treating space the way that we treat the high seas with respect to uh, and national security purposes. And I think that the U.S. has, uh, I was, you know, a veteran of the Senate battles in 2007-2008 over um, missile defense. And I remember that the Democrats at that time were insisting on that we can't weaponize space. And that was a really self, that was a really counterproductive move for the United States because the Chinese got a jump on us and the Chinese have thoroughly mil- militarized space. And I think that we've got to be able to establish a forceful presence in space and understand what capabilities we need uh, in space and be able to come to an arrangement with these other space powers about how we're going to treat the commons in outer space, because those problems are going to dominate the decades uh, and I dare say centuries ahead. All right, let's uh, let's flex to our, our final topic, which is the issue you've been following that's not necessarily on the front page. Rob, you're going first. I'm going first. Uh, first, I would like to uh, pull on Mario's thread about canceled treaties and, you know, thank the, the Trump administration for pulling out of INF because the Russians were violating it. The Chinese weren't bound by it, and we were the only ones adhering to it. So that gives us now the opportunity to explore uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles, not necessarily nuclear capable, uh, which I don't think we will. So cheers to, to two administrations for realizing that the Russians don't play by the rules, even in these treaties that they're bound by. Um, what am I following? Uh, it's border season, folks. And no, it's not in the in the news yet. Uh, but you go back to CBP's web page and look at the statistics for encounters along the border. Uh, almost double of 2020 uh, encounters and uh, even significantly higher than 2019 encounters. Um, So we need to be watching closely as more surges. We're not seeing news of caravans. We're not seeing news of um, surges at the border at this point. Uh, Obviously, the front pages are taken up with everything else we've been talking about today. Uh, So I will be watching that and have something more to report back uh, next time I'm on the show. Mario. Uh, well, I would, I would say something that's been in the headlines recent, relatively recently and is going to be in the headlines again is Taiwan, where my position is very different than my position on Ukraine. Uh, and where I would say that given, you know, I think that the, just like uh, I was telling someone the other day, just like Carter, uh, under the Carter administration, we promised to fight the Soviet, if the Soviets invaded Iran, we promised to fight the Soviets on the ground in Iran with or without permission of the Iranian government. That's, that's the kind of 
commitment we have to be prepared to make in Taiwan, because just like the Persian Gulf was the lifeblood of the world economy decades ago, uh, the semiconductor industry is now um, a real cho- a, a real bottleneck in the world economy today, and of particularly vital, crucial, crucial interest to the United States. Um, that the Taiwan, the Taiwan semiconductor uh, capability and supply to the world not be interrupted and not be coerced and not be subject to coercive threats. And so, um, you know, all for nationalism and everything. And and I hope to see China and Taiwan reunified when China becomes a democracy one day. But I think that we have to be prepared to defend uh, Taiwan from coercive threats or any kind of a military destabilization. Uh, and relatedly, we are. I see that the you know antitrust uh, discussion, antitrust, uh, the way people talk about antitrust laws and competition policy in the United States is trending very much in the wrong direction. Uh, British regulators just blocked Nvidia's acquisition of ARM, uh, the the chip designer in Britain. Uh, we need to be able. We need our American semiconductor companies and manufacturers to be able to consolidate and be competitive globally. And we need uh, to bring those uh, manufacturing capabilities back home as soon as possible because um, the recent turmoil across the South China Sea with Taiwan has exposed real a real strategic vulnerability of the United States. Carmen. Well, uh, I've been racking my brain, and I think I'll mention a good news story, I think, which is that uh, the Philippine uh, election process to replace uh, Duterte is underway. And despite, I think, my concerns when he came to power uh, as uh, very much a, a strong man model, that uh, he might not uh, relinquish power seem to be have been ill-founded. And it, in the kind of classic uh, vibrant Filipino uh, manner, there is an election campaign underway. And in the end, uh, that can only be good news. More toxic masculinity. Um, uh, you said that. I did not say that. Yeah, we might work that into the title for the show. The issue I was following by not following it was uh, the Winter Olympics in Beijing that concluded uh, a few days ago. Uh, I did not watch them. I am not a fan of the Olympics. Uh, Adjust your uh, televisions accordingly. Uh, I've I've never really thought it was that interesting. I'm particularly disturbed by the news that some of these terrible aspects of the Olympics were on full display there. Athletes who are too young, athletes who are taking drugs, athletes who are under way too much uh, mental and emotional pressure uh, for their for their own good. It was a uh, plus uh, the human rights issues in China. On top of all that, it was a, a terrible display. I think we should just cancel the Olympics going forward and come up with a different way to compete with each other. That's my take on the news. All right. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at Mason Natsec. Be sure to check out our recent NSI Live podcast.
podcast, as we most recently did an event with NBA star Enos Cantor Freedom, exiled Hong Kong activist Joey Siu, Congressman Mike Gallagher, and Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan to discuss China's human rights record and the Winter Olympics. If you like what we are doing here, please be review and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Ariel Rose Marin for research assistance, and Ruth Joe for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.